Welcome back after Easter Sunday. It was, like Marcy said, it was a, a great morning. We just enjoyed it thoroughly. And, and again, thanks to everybody who, who had a role in that, and thanks to everybody who was here. And as we, as I put together a, a sermon schedule for the year, um, right now we were supposed to be talking about oh, about six weeks of the life of Abraham. But then something happened, and we're going to go a different direction. We're going to... No, we're not surprised, but in the, this time there's a reason behind it, and uh, I won't share the reason this week, but, but I'll probably get around to it. And we're going to talk about being a disciple. And um, the SLT has made some remarkable um, discoveries and decisions over the last year that have really pointed us in a refreshing new direction. But, but part of the direction has to do with becoming better disciples. And so this is something that, that I, I feel quite strongly, and I believe God's in it. And so we're going to talk about discipleship for uh, the weeks coming up to Pentecost. And one of the Sundays, two weeks from, no, three weeks from today, uh, Kelly's going to be sharing. So um, it's going to be a good time. And hopefully our intent is to go a little bit deeper into, uh, deeper into our own questions about how are we living what does a life of a disciple of Christ look like? And um, how do we integrate that into a Caldwell context? Because this is the place where we, we live and work and carry on our business and, and worship the Lord together. One of the greatest impediments to the spreading of our Christian faith isn't people's disagreement with the Bible. I've never heard anybody say to me that they disagree with any part of the life of Christ. Has anybody ever heard a complaint against Jesus? I didn't think so. But what you do hear complaints about, and where you do find the head scratching, is in the message of Christianity. It's not, not Jesus they have a problem with. It's Christianity. The message that we send. And as I've been looking forward to this and studying for the last few weeks, uh, a Christian will be found in one of three categories. There's the believer, there's the disciple, and then there's the apostle. And this morning I, I want you to consider this reality that we rarely talk about, and it's this. Every disciple is a believer but not every believer is a disciple. There's an incredible difference between the two, a staggering difference between the two. And when the world looks at a Christian, they expect to see a disciple. And a lot of times that's not what we're showing them. And that's why we want to go into this kind of a topic. There are millions of people in the United States, and you see the surveys when they come out, the overwhelming percentage of people who claim a faith claim to be Christian, right? And probably, chances are, most of these people really do believe in God. They believe that God's, who God is, is revealed to us in, in Scripture. These believers believe that this is His Word and it's trustworthy. They accept the account of the world's creation, 
They'll believe that God or Jesus is God's only son who made a once for everyone perfect sacrifice and atone for the sins of the entire world. They believe that they no longer, because of Jesus' sacrifice and their belief, no longer have to fear judgment. They don't have to live in fear of God and that they have a place reserved in heaven for eternity. They believe that God answers prayer. A believer will vote for the right political party. But ironically, it's more regional than it is Christian. A Christian, if we were to pick up this church, move it to Seattle, Washington, we're not going to do that, or Portland, or San Francisco. You know what I'm saying? Christians vote different than we do, right? Believers advocate for prayer in public school. And leading a clean, moral life is what they aspire to. And I can say this with with quite a bit of confidence because this is how I lived for about 25 years when we were first married. Living a clean, moral, not faultless, but moral life was was what I aspired to. And the verse that gave me the most comfort and the most hope was from Romans 10. Verse 9, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I hung my life on that verse. That was the verse that gave me comfort. That was the verse that gave me hope. Because I had checked that box. I believed that. So I'm good. In fact, the Bible says so. And for so many years, that was my salvation story. It's who I was. But every time that I would read the book of James, which wasn't often, I would stumble at this verse, James 2, 19. You believe that there is one God? Good. Congratulations. Even the demons believe that. I thought I could live my life as a believer hold the the words of Scripture as true and inspired. And at the same time, I was refusing to let its impact and its influence change the way I lived. Every time that the Holy Spirit would confront me, I would give it the stiff arm. I'd go back to Romans 10, 9. Hey, I believe. I checked the box. I'm okay. I'm living a good, clean, moral life. And Sharon is discipling our kids. So everything's cool. But uh, believing it, yet resisting it. It's no wonder my spiritual life felt like it had no traction. Because it didn't. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote, I believe this is from a letter he was writing to a friend. He said, if conversion to Christianity makes no improvement in a man's outward actions, if he continues to be just as snobbish or spiteful or envious as he was before, then I think we must suspect that his conversion was largely imaginary. There's a lot of imaginary Christians in our world. There are a lot of Christians in name only. 
maybe even in belief only. And so an important question that we have to ask ourselves, and I had to face this at one point, was what am I? Am I a believer or am I a disciple? Because again, you know, every disciple is a believer, but not every believer is a disciple. And this particular issue was of incredible importance to Jesus. When Jesus left the world, he didn't tell his followers, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, so go make believers. So go make disciples. And if we don't get the making of disciples right within these four walls, how can, how can we anticipate replicating that beyond the walls? In the 89 chapters that make up the, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the words believe, believer, believe, and believed are used 117 times. The word disciple by itself appears over 268 times. Over three times per chapter of the Bible from the NIV, the word disciple appears. You think it's important? It's very important. How do we recognize a real disciple? According to Jesus. And that's, this is one of the questions that we are going to keep asking for the next few weeks. What is in the strand of a disciple's DNA? And here are three of the characteristics of Jesus. First, a disciple obeys Jesus' words. From John 8, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Isn't it interesting in the Bible that the fiercest believers, the fiercest defenders of the faith were Jesus' greatest enemies? The Pharisees? The Pharisees knew the law. They understood the Shema. They fastidiously kept it. And as much as it was within their power, they made sure everybody else respected and obeyed it too. But the last thing a Pharisee would consider was holding themselves to the standards of Jesus' teaching and his instruction. Instead, the fiercest believers spent their time trying to confound Jesus' message and confuse the people that had heard it. The second thing, disciples love one another. John 13, or excuse me, 15, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. That's, that's so straightforward. And the more we work with Love Caldwell, and, and we've had conversations with uh, Believe it or not, LDS people have come to us asking for conversations about how they can be involved in this kind of uh, community service work. And we're still trying to understand what God wants to do there. But 
if we love one another, it's going to cut across denominationalism and tribalism. We're going to love everybody, regardless of the name on the church or whether or not that person even attends a church. We love because Christ loved. Christ's love was unconditional. It's hard for us to love unconditionally, isn't it? I'll just leave that at that. Christian love is called agape love. Agape love is unconditional. And further, agape love is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's more of a decision that I will love as Christ loved. Agape love contains a willingness to lay aside the life that I live for the good of somebody else and the struggles that they're having. Are we laying down our lives for others? Is my life prioritized about somebody else's desperation? Or is my agape love all about me, prioritizing myself? The third thing, a disciple bears fruit. And here's where I kind of want to camp out for a while today. In John 15, as Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says, This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. A disciple bears fruit. Toward the end of Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth, he, he writes some words of instruction and encouragement that, that really demand our attention. Paul, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That seems pretty straightforward. Why does Paul instruct them with this? It's the nature of believers to cluster themselves in spiritual and tribal isolation. It's the nature of believers to come together as tribes, as factions, as denominations, and live in spiritual isolation. Uh, within this body, within a church, we believe, we lean on one another, we love one another, our faith won't be shaken, we won't allow ourselves to be tainted by the outside world. Back to my own case, we'll, we'll do our best to live a moral, upright life of good character. We will advocate for the right causes. And then a lot of us have this idea, besides what's the point, when Jesus comes back, he's going to take this awful, evil world and remake it into something spectacular. He'll turn it into the world the way it should be. So why invest in this place when Jesus is just going to rewrite everything? And that was part of the attitude among the believers in Corinth. Again, the early church, when they heard Jesus is returning, they expected it immediately, soon. 
But Paul doesn't say to them, he says, okay, believers, since you have such great faith, now you can just sit back and relax because you know God's got a great future in store for you. But Paul says something quite the opposite. He says, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is a strategic insight that a disciple holds on to. Every bit of good that we do in the here and now, it matters. It matters. And somehow, in God's economy, in God's way of doing things, our labor in the Lord is not in vain. When Christ comes back to set everything straight, the things that we have done, the community suppers that we have held, the clothes we have given, it's not in vain. One of my favorite theologians puts it this way, and it's kind of a long quote, but I want you to hear it. And he's talking about this particular portion of Scripture in Paul's letter to the the church of Corinth. Again, it's, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is his comment. By this, what Paul means is that what you do in the present, by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. He says, by such labors, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You are not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown on the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. You are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become, in due course, part of God's new world. What you do in the Lord is not in vain. All these things that we are involved in, all these times that we talk about the kingdom of heaven, all these opportunities that come our way, they are building for God's future kingdom. When Jesus returns and this world will be made new, somehow, some way, God is going to carry all of our efforts forward. Everything that we do now is an investment in the kingdom. Every kind word that we say is an investment in the kingdom. The world sees us as we are not. The world assumes that everyone who calls themselves a believer is a disciple. Not every believer is a disciple. Living life as a disciple is where belief is applied. 
we can change the Caldwell context and at the same time rewrite the story of our church or add a new chapter to the story of our church. But we can't do that just by believing in Jesus. We have to become disciples of Jesus. We have to be authentic followers of Christ. We have to apply what we say we believe. The next time that you're compelled to pray about a certain specific need, consider this. A believer believes God hears and answers prayer. And they pray in faith. But a disciple, a disciple believes God hears and answers prayer. And they pray in faith too. But a disciple is also aware that God may want to use them or give them the tools or the graces or the connections or the wisdom or the patience, not just to pray for an answer, but to actually be the answer. And a disciple gets up in the morning thinking, I can't wait to see how God will use me today. A disciple is willing and anxious to be used because it matters to the kingdom. The kind word that I say at Flying M somehow builds the kingdom to come. A disciple obeys, a disciple loves, and a disciple bears fruit. And because God uses our efforts, because they're not in vain, a disciple will approach the city and approach the world not as something that we have to sit by and endure until Jesus comes back. No, not at all. We have to see the world in our city, and we have to see them rationally in their present state, not how they used to be or not how we wish they were. We have to take it as we find it. We have to see it as as God's gracious open door, a gift to us, to his people, to his disciples, to be part of the building of his kingdom. Today, he invites us in to be part of his great redemption story. But you can't do that through belief alone. In the building of the kingdom, we have to remember that there is no insignificant act We don't have to come up with some broad, contextual, conceptual program or way to meet a need. We overthink this. Jesus said even a cup of cool water is enough. The culture has misunderstood our faith and and we have let it happen. And the misunderstanding lingers because we don't correct it. Being a believer, calling yourself a Christian doesn't make you a disciple. It doesn't. Jesus tells a story about a businessman traveling between cities. And along the way, he gets jumped, he's beat up, they take his clothes, they take his goods, they take everything from him. The punks leave him by the side of the road. And a believer walked right past him and refused to help. Somebody who defended the faith walked right past him 
He refused to help. Then to make matters worse, a second believer walked past him. But then the most unlikely subject who had the heart of a disciple came by. If we open our eyes and if we allow the Holy Spirit to make us aware and to ask better questions, slowly but surely, we find that Caldwell has a whole lot of broken people, stranded, beat up, lying by the side of the road. Abandoned, broken, in desperate need. We won't be the ones. Our church will not be the church that is so satisfied in their belief that they abandon discipleship. We cannot pass people by. This is a critical and exciting time for me, for our church, for all of us. We have seen the heart of this church change. In some ways, it feels like we carry the burden for the whole city alone. I know that's not true, but sometimes it feels that way. But if that's what God has called us to in our walk of discipleship, we have to see that as God's opportunity for us. He will put us where he needs us. He will give us the gifts, the graces, the tools, the resources to build his kingdom in ways where we can be incredibly effective and productive. We will produce fruit. We will. But we've got to go even deeper and farther into a walk of discipleship. We will take the next six weeks or so to apply the clutch and shift gears and rev the engine. How's that sound? Father, we thank you. We stand in awe of what you have done from creation itself when you spoke to this moment that we enjoy right now. It's just staggering to think that that you have a role created for us as individuals, a role for our church. You've created, as it says, you have created work for us to do even before we were born. Father, as I was talking to somebody this morning, during the greeting time, they were talking about their spouse and how they are uh, basically dragging them down the path of discipleship. How it's so important to be invested in the lives of others and not just invested in ourselves. God, thank you for the opportunity that you give us. Thank you for a church with so many willing hearts to pursue those people that are by the side of the road and broken and stranded and forgotten. Again, Father, these are... Uh, these are good days, exciting days, and days that bring conviction as well. So, Father, may we hear your voice clearly. May we hear it clearly. May we understand what you're asking of us. And, Father, may that then we, we go forth boldly 
Father, in just a few moments, as we come to the table, again, we recognize Christ's sacrifice. He bled and died. He rose again. And now he has enlisted his followers, his disciples, in this ongoing restoration process, the redemption of the world. Father, as we, as we taste the bread and we drink from that cup, God, sink that message further and deeper into our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen.